Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Gateway Rescue Mission, meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the homeless right here in Jackson, Mississippi. Check us out at www.gatewaymission.org. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music as we kick off a brand new week here on Midday's Rhino. Howdy, howdy. Well, what was your weekend like other other than soggy, a bit wet? <laughs> it seems like it was grief. soggy for everybody because uh, I got a text from Scary Gary Saturday afternoon that the Clash, the the first NASCAR race of the season, had been moved up a day. Yeah. So it was scheduled to run yesterday out in L.A., but it moved up to Saturday night so he could get it in because of the bomb cyclone that's hitting L.A. Yeah. So, yeah, it's apparently it's been soggy for just about everyone. So I heard a report yesterday uh, concerning the weather that in L.A., where you see this giant storm moving through, that they were set to receive the amount of rain the next 24, 48 hours that is equal to their entire average annual rainfall amount. That's a bunch of water. Of course, it doesn't rain a lot, as you know, as the right. song says in Southern California. And then it's headed over to Arizona. So I haven't looked at the long-range forecast, but, of course, this uh, Sunday is the Super Bowl, and that also means it's time... For the big Phoenix Open, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, the Professional Golf Association Tournament, draws the biggest crowds on tour, does that uh, tournament. The weather typically is just delightful desert-type sunshine, no wind. But I don't know about this deal moving over, whether or not it'll be out of there by then. Super Bowl played this Sunday up there in Las Vegas. Pro Bowl. This Sunday? Super Bowl is this Sunday. It's coming right. Sunday. That's what I mean. Pro Bowl was yesterday. Right. But is it the Super Bowl in Las Vegas? I think so, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was talking about. So um, the golf tournament is always the same weekend. And, and so, uh, well, I just didn't know if the weather was going to be a factor in Las Vegas as well. Um, man, the, the stock market, folks, if you're not looking at that today, the Dow is down... 391. It was down more than 400 points. That's because, oh, Jerome Powell, you know who he is. He runs the Federal Reserve. He's cautioning about projected rate cuts this year, and investors didn't like that tone and tenor. And that 
prompted a sell-off. I caught an interview. It was a really good interview this past weekend. Fox Business, Maria Bartiromo, with former President Donald Trump. He said Powell's gone if he's elected. Powell is gone. He's not happy. He thinks he ought to be cutting interest rates right now. That's what the president said. He also said that he thinks that Iran is within 60 days of having a nuclear weapon and the means to to fire it, transport it, and strike U.S. targets. That was uh, that's a bit dour, but he could be right. I, I'm not sure what the basis for that assertion is exactly. He just feels like that that is uh, in the offing here. We'll, we shall see. Great interview, though. I thoroughly enjoyed it. He, uh, I mean, it was a typical, I think, uh, talking about the disaster that is the current president and what we could expect in a second Trump term. Still beating the drum of drill, baby, drill. Getting that oil out there. Thinks that is key to economic prosperity, growth, and curbing inflation. And he's all over it and all about it. In the meantime, you probably saw in South Carolina, Joe Biden wins easily in the Democrat primary, which was held on Saturday. He got like 96% of the vote. I mean, of course, who else is in there? Marianne Williamson, Dean Phillips. And it seems like there's one other candidate that's in there as well. But he took 96%. And actually, maybe the other candidate, what's his name? Crazy guy, professor. I think he may be an independent. He's, Cornell West. That's it, yeah. yeah I mean, how many times does he run? About 18 times or something like that. He keeps on trying. What does he do that for? The, I've been spending a lot of time reading, Rhino, about Bidenomics and just... Where we are, it is amazing the spin the Democrats are putting on the economy and the state thereof. And it's you can sense the frustration by Democrats that voters aren't responding. They don't feel good about their economic situation. That the whole concept of so-called Bidenomics is just falling flat. It's almost like politicians in general are disconnected from the reality of day-to-day American life, especially so if they have a D by their name. It's, there's no doubt. And so here's what they – it's these sort of duplicitous descriptions and narratives. Like, it is true that over the last year, wages have exceeded the increase in wages, the increase – of inflation. That's absolutely true. It's like 4.5 to 3.2, something like that. Wage increase, average wage increase. Absolutely true. However, when you go back to when Joe Biden took office, and then you measure inflation and wages, and the difference between those two is what's known as real wages. So you have nominal wages. That just means you're making 10 bucks. Your boss comes in and says, here, have 12. Well, that's just a nominal increase. But if inflation is such that 
the cost of living, if you will, has increased to $15, just for argument's sake. You're upside down by three. You've got to raise two bucks an hour, but it costs you $3 more per hour to live at the same level you did before. So when you, when you assess it cumulatively, Americans are upside down by anywhere from two grand to twenty five hundred. So what happens is people that that take a more holistic approach to measuring economic progress or lack thereof since Joe Biden's been in office, they consider it from the time he took office. The Democrats, on the other hand, want you to fo- and the president wants you to focus on oh no, just the last year. Look, you're ahead. Well, based on the trend. It's certainly possible that in a couple of years, wages, if they continue to increase at the same rate, could exceed the increase, the cumulative increase of inflation, just the cost of living. But at this point, that is not the case. You're upside down. So I think the reason it's not resonating is that, and see what you think about this, Rhino, people go to the store, they go to the gas pump, they see what they're paying for various goods, they remember what they paid for that a short three and a half years ago. And they, they're they going to just naturally, it's just human nature, they're going to draw that comparison. They're not going to think about their wages and whether or not their real wages are up or down, which, by the way, over the three and a half year period, they're, they're still down. You're, relative to inflation, your wages have not kept up. Over the last year, absolutely. If you just look at the price increases of the last year, Relative to your wage increases, on average, these are all Bureau of Labor Statistics averages. Sure, you're to the good. It's a positive. But over the last three and a half years, it's a negative. People remember that, do they not? Oh, yeah. It's, it's impo- And so I think what they're discounting is people got walloped with these price increases in a short period of time. Remember, it all started kicking in in about early 22, because the entire year of 21, well, we knew that all this money you're dropping out of helicopters is going to fuel inflation. And remember, all the smart guys, the 400 PhDs at the Department of Treasury, it's transitory, <laughs> including Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. He, too, used the T word. Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen and every other Biden surrogate Calm down, all is well, it's transitory. And then about six months later, boom, 9.5% inflation hit everybody upside the head. And wages were stagnant. That's what people remember. And so, look no further than about two and a half, three years ago, Democrats, to understand why this Bidenomics concept is falling flat, because that's exactly what's happening. We've got uh, Andrea Sanders coming on the program on middays. She is the commissioner of the Mississippi Department of Child Protection Services. That's at 11.05. It's Monday, so that means Super Talk Outdoors with your host, Ricky Matthews, at 12.05. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. We're in the Element Well studio. Headed down to the beautiful Mississippi Gulf Coast Friday after the show, Rhino, for the Journey Concert at the Mississippi Coast Coliseum. Looking forward to that for sure. It's going to be a whole bunch of fun. Glad the Journey Boys are kicking the 2024 Freedom Tour off in the great state of Mississippi. Pretty cool deal. So, uh, Thomas and Greenwood says, why didn't it's the economy stupid work in 2022 in the midterms? I'll tell you why, Thomas. Uh, first, um, a good deal of the reason, I believe, why Republicans didn't really fare as well as, as projected in the midterms is because of the quality of candidates. I think that lacked. Uh, I also believe that with respect to the economy as an issue. I think most people look to the commander-in-chief, to the president, for that. I don't think they consider uh, candidates for the House or for the Senate. It's it's really something that tends to be more closely associated with the president. And, and so, and of course, that refrain from the famous... James Carville, who ran Bill Clinton's campaign, who understood that was the way to motivate voters. They are motivated by economic issues. However, present polls, and we'll get to this in the program today, present polls show that immigration, specifically the border, the chaos, the lack of institutional control at the border is uh, top of mind to voters. The economy coming in second. Now, I think that is largely, Rhino, a result of inflation moderating somewhat. You know, I I think folks are seeing that it's not just crazy every time they go, some sort of increase. And there's some things that have retreated in price. Eggs is one that was in focus. And a lot of that was a result of um, the flu that devastated much of the egg-laying chicken population. So I I think that's at play here. Um, Also, speaking of duplicity, if we've got it here, I wanted to share this uh, this bit of sound from old Senator Elizabeth Warren. You ever go for the last chip in the Dorito bag and suddenly say, whoa, there should have been more chips in here? You would be right. From Doritos to Oreos to even toilet paper, these big corporations are shrinking how much they give us, but they're charging the same amount or sometimes even more. It's called shrinkflation. Corporate executives thought we wouldn't notice, but they're wrong. We noticed. Now the corporations come back crying, oh, it's all because of inflation. Really? Then explain this. How is it that corporate profits have increased by 75% over the past few years? They are outrunning inflation by miles. We're not fooled. These giant corporations are inflating their profits and leaving us with the crumbs, literally. It's time to crack down on corporate greedflation. I'm fed up, no pun intended. Oh, wasn't that clever? Left with the crumbs. Well, Am I the only person on the planet <laughs> that hears nails on a chalkboard whenever that idiot opens her mouth? Negative. You are not. So, 
There's just one teeny tiny little problem with what the senator said. I know you're shocked at this, at the untruths incorporated in her little soliloquy there. So I got curious. I did a little research after I saw that on the financial statements, the financial performance of, you know, who makes Doritos. Who's that? Frito-Lay. Guess who owns Frito-Lay? PepsiCo. No secret there. So I did a little digging into their financial statements. She's wrong, 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 wrong. There's no 75% increase in profit. Not whatsoever. It is absolutely true that between 2020 and 2021, they had a slight increase of profit, about 7%. They also had a significant increase in revenue. So would you be concerned if they increased revenue by some significant amount, but yet profit went down or stayed the same or didn't increase by somewhere close to the same percentage? And by the way, between 19 and 20, their profit went down about 5%. And then in 21, it went up. 22, it went up about 12%. And then in 23, the most recent year, it went down about 4%. She's just wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, there certainly are some other companies who have enjoyed significant increases in profit. We saw last week unbelievable earnings reports from the big tech guys. The problem is she used a company as an example to illustrate this dumb point about their profits are up, it's greedflation, except she's wrong, because that's not the case with respect to PepsiCo. I, I know I get fired up because the lion drives me dang crazy. It just does. That's just lying. That's just, you call it what it is. That is not true. And this side, and so here's the other question. Well, if it's that easy there, Senator, just raise prices. Well, why did they wait till Joe Biden's administration to do that? Yeah, it's not like shrinkflation is anything new. No, not whatsoever. And so, by the way, I read the company's annual report and remarks from the CEO and the CFO, and guess what they talk about? Increasing costs because the stuff they're buying to make Doritos is going up. Everybody's is. Largely driven by Joe Biden's ridiculously terrible policies. So it's, I just, I get so mad at this idea. You just got to lower your prices. Who does that? Oh, yeah, we're just, it's just, we're just feeling charitable today. Does anybody out there go in and tell their boss, I work for less today? No. Is that not the same deal? Well, the simple-minded people that support politicians like Senator Warren would point to specials like, oh, well, the fast food place is selling 19-cent burgers (laughs) without any concept of what a lost leader is. Let's be honest. She doesn't have any concept whatsoever of how businesses operate. No. She just doesn't. Yet she's a sitting U.S. senator 
that has a fair amount of power over the financial industry. In this video, and we a played, dubious history of racist behavior. That's exactly right. Or at least racist behavior, according to the 2023-2024 definition that her party promulgates. Uh, so true. It uh, That just bothered me. I had to pass that on to you because it's just more lying. More lying. And the problem, as you know, is that her little train seal supporters, they just eat that crap up. Yeah, it's at, at Frito-Lay. <laughs> They're just gouging me <laughs> with the Doritos here. Like, where do we get to the point in this country where profit is so strongly demonized? No profit, no jobs. No jobs, no economy. No economy, no society. It ain't that hard to figure out. It's because half the politicians in the country and the supporters that vote for them are doing everything in their power to hide their communist or socialistic leanings because they know that's not really popular enough for them to hold or gain ground in their power grabs. So they try to hide behind euphemisms and word salad to show, no, 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 no. We don't really want to seize the means of production. We don't really (laughs) want to own everything and tell you what you can and can't do. It's for your good. It's for your benefit. Pay no attention to the historical evidence that this is never going to work. But listen to what I'm saying. It's for you. That's true. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. It's a bunch of word salad and euphemisms. That's totally true. It's, it's, It's pernicious communism is what it is you don't really see it it's not just in in big swoops it it's not direct it's more covert it's like by the way um, the rules that are about to pass that would uh, affect gig workers you want you want just a gig job such as an uber driver that's the common one that kind of comes to mind nope you, you you can't do that. You don't know what you're doing. We've got to protect you. You've got to be treated like an employee, even though that's not what they want. That's not what their employer wants. Just leave them the hell alone. It's fine. We don't need you coming in and thinking, oh, I can manage Uber better than Uber can. It's working fine. Even if it's not, still you got to stay out. It's not for you to get involved in, to intervene, to intercede. That is socialism. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. You're listening to Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays, kicking off a brand new week here in the Element Well Studio. The ceasefire text line 601-879-4395. Jason in Starkville says, have you seen the price of a bag of beef jerky? 
I haven't, uh, Jason. I I don't uh, I don't consume beef jerky, but I'm assuming it's it's uh, increased substantially. Oh yeah. Wow. Well, it's just another example. And so I think it's frustrating to Biden and the Democrats that why don't people understand how great they have? <laughs> That's what they think. <laughs> if you got to explain it, you're in trouble, right? And so recent polls, by the way show former President Trump leading the current president by about five points nationwide, but importantly, leading the current president is uh, former President Donald Trump in the pivotal swing states. That's where really the election for the president is determined in a handful of counties in four or five states. And he's looking good there, is the former president. He did uh, this weekend, by the way, hint a bit at whom his vice presidential candidate may be. He actually dropped the names of two individuals, that being Tim Scott and uh, South Dakota Governor, Senator Tim Scott, of course, from South Carolina was a candidate for president not so long ago. And you know what Trump said? You're much better campaigning for me than you are for yourself. (laughs) He kind of gave him a bit of a backhanded compliment there. But uh, Governor Christie, no, was mentioned by name. Says he talks to her all the time. And he likes her because he said uh, that she told him she couldn't beat him, thus she would not run against him. So that, I guess it's fair to say, endeared herself to him, I still think that Representative Elise Stefanik, who certainly increased her name ID, I think, and her favorability when she led the questioning of the woke professors from Harvard, MIT, and Pennsylvania on the Hill not so long ago about the rash of anti-Semitism on their campus. And remember when she asked Dr. Claudine Gay, I say that, Rhino, a bit tongue-in-cheek, because now we've learned that her doctorate was largely achieved by plagiarizing her, her work, her, her work product, her writings. Well, she, was, she asked Claudine Gay whether or not it was inappropriate to call for the genocide of Israel, something to that effect. She said, well, it depends on the context. And remember, at least Stefani said, it does not. The answer is no, it's not appropriate. And she just had that smug, pompous smile looking, you know, through her glasses down in her nose somewhat. She has since been removed from her post as president of the elite Harvard University. So, it seems like they got all kinds of academic integrity problems at Harvard. How many more have been uh, now disclosed as having committed plagiarism? A at bunch least of other four high-ranking members of the faculty and staff there. Good gosh. They got a problem, I would say. Falsifying data for research, plagiarism, fudging of data. Yeah. Yeah. It puts a bit of a stain, does it not? on their degrees and any degrees issued, granted by the university. It really does. It's sad. shouldn't be that way. shouldn't be that way. But that's, that's wokeness in America right there, kind of in a nutshell. 
So, um, by the way, you got to love this. We were talking about this, this um, the duplicity and just the constant attack on those who have achieved any wealth, any any uh, assets in this country. Robert Reich, you know who he is. He's one of our favorites to talk about. Little miserable person, <laughs> former Secretary of Education for President Bill Clinton. No doubt a card-carrying communist, let's be honest. Well, he shared a post from the patriotic millionaires. <laughs> Aren't they so patriotic? And there are three... Wealthy individuals featured Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg. And it's a meme that shows the photos of the three with their wealth value in 2014 and their wealth in 2024. And then in the fourth, so it, it's a meme that's got four photos, four squares. In the fourth, in the bottom right, Musk at the top left, Bezos top right. Zuckerberg, bottom left, bottom right, U.S. minimum wage in 2014, it was $7.25. In 2024, it's $7.25. Okay. So what does that have to do with the massive amount of value created by these wealthy individuals who were rewarded by the market? They don't like that. They don't like that concept. And... Big bottom banner underlying the four photos and block letters, three words, tax the rich. My question anytime I see that is, for what? Is that is that precluding you from spending whatever you want to now? Taxing the rich? They send more money in? So what? Does that matter? It's not like you'll keep spending the same and reduce the deficit, and maybe approach a point where you could start paying down on the debt. No. It, it's to, it's punitive. It's for you to run around and say, look what I did. I taxed those dirty, greedy, evil, rich people. There's no financial reason you want to do that. But what's really astounding, and this is what bothers me more than anything, because I think this sort of attitude is proliferating our society. I look at the comments. That's where I'm just always amused. And the very first one is, that will never happen in America as long as there are poor people to be ripped off. We're ripping off those poor people, who, by the way, in this country, the poor people, are better off than about 90% of the globe. 68% of the wealth in the USA is owned by the top 10%. Okay. So what? This listen to this one, Rhino. Just get rid of the things they can deduct on their taxes once they reach a certain level of income. <laughs> oh gosh. I mean, sending more money to the government is the most inefficient use of capital you could ever imagine. The billionaires of this world, by the laws and governments they want, their money counts for more than your votes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
eat the ultra-riches. <laughs> it's just incredible. But that's what these fools think. They really do. And no, no rationale for it. Here's another one from our friend Liz Warren, talking about economic matters this morning. The payroll tax that funds Social Security does not apply to income above 160000 So Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, the richest men on earth, contribute just as much as your neighborhood dentist. I'm fighting to expand Social Security by getting the wealthy to pay their fair share. She's leaving out another teeny tiny important detail here. Is that she not only wants them to pay more, she wants to prohibit them from receiving any benefits. We want you to pay more, rich guys. Oh, but when it comes to your retirement, not that you need that, you're not getting any. So essentially what she's saying is we want you to pay for the retirement benefits of your neighbors, like your neighborhood dentist, for example. That's what she's saying. And even if they were to sign up for it, there's a limit. It doesn't matter how much you pay in, it tops out. There's a threshold. 3600 bucks a month or something like that. But she just fails to mention that little detail. That's what she wants. Yeah, they got to pay more in. You don't get any out, but look at how charitable you're being. Your compassion for your fellow man. You're paying their Social Security benefits. That's what she wants. And this kind of crap gets gets uh, spewed all, all across social media, and her, her little train sales just lap that crap up and have no idea how the system works, none whatsoever. The Senate finally released, the U.S. Senate, the long-awaited border legislation, 370 pages in that bill. I started reading a little bit of it yesterday. There's just some bizarreness, shall we say, in it as far as the power it confers to the related agencies to shut down the border, what thresholds must be attained in order to do that. And then there's also kind of a discretionary shutdown power they have as well. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Hey, this is Bob, and if you're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Back everyone, it is middays. We're live in the Element Well studio. I've seen two pounds of jerky cost fifty-four bucks. Jeez. In some places. Wow. Gary from Tishomingo was talking about Liz Warren flat out lying. Ken and Nip West Point, is she willing to take a pay cut? 174.4 is what they make serving in the U.S. Congress. Where's my dividend increase from PEP stock if po- Pocahontas is right, says Reese and Clark's the hell. They're packed by weight, you idiot. Not you, Gerard. <laughs> Correct. But still, though, uh, this idea, this, this narrative statement, 75% increase. That's just horse hockey. Total. Now, 
Meta, by the way, the parent company of Facebook, did you guys check them out on Friday? Stock was up 81 bucks, 20% in one day. 20%. That was because revenue and earnings came in much higher than expected. They made uh, $14 billion in the quarter. Amazon made 10, which was huge for them because in 2022, by the way, they're in the middle of their fiscal year, 2022, they made 12 billion. They're on a, a sales run rate of about 650 billion. They had a big time fourth quarter, the holiday season quarter. Apple blew it out again, made 34 billion dollars in a quarter. In a quarter. 34 billion. You can do the math. They're on a run rate there of uh, 132 billion versus last year they made 115 billion. That's on sales of about 460 billion dollars, folks. That's printing money. It's our fault. We buy all that stuff. Quit buying them iPhones and iMacs and all the cloud services. Quit doing that. You're making them rich. Well, now it's the Vision Pro. That's true. What 3,600 bucks or something yeah. like that? I don't know about that. So there was a question that uh, I wanted to get to. Uh, let's see here. Journey Week, somebody sent us a, that's right, somebody sent us a text earlier. Um, uh, I'm looking for it. About uh, income tax refunds. Who, who sent that, Rhino? Um, was asking why there's a lot of reports of folks saying that they're not expecting the kind of refund they got last year. I'm I'm looking for it. I can't find it. I, I apologize for that. But I but I was just going to explain. There there's a number of reasons. If we're talking about tax year 23 versus 22, and uh, there's about three or four reasons. One is remember the old helicopter money. So didn't issue any any of that. And some folks had that before, and that was reconciled on your tax return. The child tax credits back to normal. So there was a pandemic-era boost to that, child-independent care credits, the earned income tax credit drops if you don't have any kids, you don't qualify for that. So a bunch of people qualify, lower-income, middle-income folks, for all these credits, and they end up receiving those as part of preparing their tax return and sending that in. That's not something you get during the year. And then charitable contributions require itemization, Back to that, and there was a, a respite on that. So, nonetheless, there's just it's just some changes in the pandemic era, IRS tax rules, and that were temporary, and what's in place now. That, that's the major driver, the reason. Danit Hasberg says he doesn't have any Apple products. Okay, I do. I don't care if they make a bunch of money. I get value from what they they make. And so do billions of other people. By the way, you know there are more cell phones on the planet than there are people? And of the total, I think it's 8.6, if I'm not mistaken, billion smartphones, Apple provides about 2.4 billion of those. Ray in Long Beach says, before any politician put forward a tax the rich proposal, their current net wealth should have to be compared to that of the year they were voted into office. They have to remember when one points a finger, they usually have three fingers pointing back at them. You can look at that, uh, Ray, and we have before. I think you'd be surprised that 
how, uh, just how low the net worth is of most folks serving in Congress. The folks that are super wealthy serving in Congress, they were that way before they got there. Last I checked, Rhino Rick Scott, the senator from Florida, he topped the list at, what, $250 million of net worth. Uh, most of them are Republicans. They were super wealthy. Mike Braun's worth, he's senator from Indiana in the uh, industrial business. He was worth, what, $60 million or something like that. So we've reviewed that. I, I think you'd be surprised. Now, now this is all uh, um, official filings that they make. There was a, certainly a time when there was a path for one to get really stinking rich because you had access to insider information that nobody else did. No doubt that there are lobbyists and others who have an agenda that contribute handsomely to many of their campaigns that cannot use that money personally. I'm not saying they don't. We've seen a couple of Democrats here recently that have unlawfully used their campaign funds, such as uh, Cory Bush in Missouri, a member of the squad. We're taking a break right here, coming back after Fox News and Super Talk News with uh, Andrea Sanders. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays is live with you now from the Element Well Studio. We welcome to the program now Andrea Sanders, Commissioner of the Mississippi Department of Child uh, Protection Services. Thanks for coming in, Andrea. Appreciate it. Thank you, Gerard. It's good to be back. So I know you have uh, lots of information to update us on with respect to child uh, protection services. Why don't we start out by just explaining exactly what CPS does? Well, um, that is a great place to start. We do a lot of things for a lot of people. Um, Our mission is really simple, though. We're here to protect children. And one of the best ways to do that is to strengthen families in Mississippi, whether it be uh, adoptive, foster, or biological families. Um, We stand in the shoes of parents for uh, today around 3,900 kids. And we also work with another 4,000 kids and families that have not yet been taken into custody, trying to help prevent removal of the children uh, keeping them safely in their own homes, but as you can imagine, it's uh, you know that's something that's it, it's not a simple matter. Yeah. So, uh, how do you get involved? How do you get engaged and involved with 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 children in in these challenging circumstances? What what brings in CPS? We run a twenty four hour hotline, and there. Are, our, our statute in Mississippi is pretty broad. Most everybody's really considered a mandatory reporter. Generally, you know, we get we get tips and calls all hours of the night. Mississippi has an anonymous reporting uh, uh, allowance in our statute, 
So we actually get a lot of, a whole lot of calls. We get about 34,000 in the past year. Hmm. And uh, so it's, it's a little bit tricky to wade through those and triage and ensure that we're really uh, spending our limited resources on the right calls. Well, that's another question that comes to mind is uh, how are you looking with respect to resources? How many folks are employed by CPS? We have around 1,750 right now. We've had a, a you know, we struggle with turnover uh, in the same way that every child welfare agency across the country does. We've actually made some progress over the last two years in bringing our turnover rate down. Nationally, the average is somewhere around 30%. It was around 35% when I first came into the agency, and we have brought it down as low as 21%. So, you know, the key to keeping a stable workforce so that we can meet the needs of children adequately is to both reduce turnover and also hire enough. And we've actually we've made a lot of progress there. The agency... Traditionally, um, at, at, in 2017, we were at a low of 45% of our workers had what's considered a, a manageable caseload, a reasonable caseload. Uh, today, we're sitting at 70%. So that's a high water mark for the state. And, you know, it sounds like a lot of numbers and data, but it really means having enough people where the children are. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think I've shared with you that uh, my wife and I served as, as foster parents for a couple of teenage boys. This was in the 2008 time period that had suddenly lost their, their only parent, their mom, and were going to get swept up into the system. There were no foster parents available to take care of two teenage boys in the state. And my understanding is when that occurs, then they, uh, I guess, are transferred into the federal system, and then the federal government was going to essentially split them up, is what we were told, and we didn't want to see that happening. But where I'm going with this is working closely with uh, our caseworker, who would um, not not share and disclose any confidential information, but talk kind of generally about their caseload. Uh, that caseworker, as I recall back then, was responsible for 75 children, which was just, I, I couldn't comprehend it, honestly. And you know what? We don't do a good job when, when we're overloaded sure. like that. Sure. The you know, our constituents in our work is live children and they're children who've already been damaged in some way. And so they can't just be, you know, it's not a stack of papers you can leave on your desk at the end of the day. And we actually don't have buildings and placements. I think sometimes the public gets confused that if you don't know what else to do with a child, just put them in CPS custody. Yeah. Um, it's not a great place for kids to live. And so, you know, the the teenagers that you took in, that is the hardest age. It's hard to find placements, and it's also a difficult age for every teenager. You know, you've raised your own. I have two, 13, 14. They struggle even with the best of environments. So. Sure giving them the opportunity to stay with their siblings and also stay in the community that they're already accustomed to. Your gift to those boys was you allowed them to stay in the school district they already knew and particularly to stay together. So 
uh, it makes a big difference when when families step up and and help meet those needs. Well, these caseworkers, they're not highly compensated. And as I understand it, they're often on call seven days a week, 24 hours a day. They get called at any time, day or night. And when that happens, they have to act. They have to go. And sometimes, as you know, it's to, it's to, to go into a home and take a child into custody, remove the, the child from that difficult situation. And just her sharing some of those stories with me and having to go to court, as you know, and you hear those stories when you go to court uh, from the chancellor there that has to make some of these very difficult decisions. Man, it's it'll break your heart. It's a lot. Um, the uh, the staff that that deal with children and families in our agency, we really run, like you said, a twenty four seven first responder agency. Right now, we do it on an eight to five business model, and you know we've made a lot of progress, as I've mentioned, over the last three years in really getting staffing where it's reasonable or, or getting closer to being adequate. However, you know, it doesn't take into account the fact that when the call comes, we have to go. And if we get 24 calls in one night in one county, we still have to go. So it's, you know, it's unique work. It can't, it, like I said, it can't be put on a desk and left until tomorrow or sometime next month. Yeah. So, and and even though I know you, you strive to achieve a certain ratio of caseworkers to, to children they're taken care of, every case is different. So um, w- one could consume the, the amount of cycles of a caseworker that, that 30 others do. That is absolutely correct. Um, we are really seeing a, a, a trend lately, and honestly, it's, it's typical of what every state is seeing across the country, and it's based it, – it's – we're having more teenagers come into state custody because nobody knows what to do with them. They're high-end, uh, high-need kids, and they have complex mental health uh, issues, behavioral issues. And the country, honestly, and and including Mississippi, is just really not ready for this mental health crisis that we're starting to see. Yeah. So the default is is that they come into state custody, and I'm happy to take responsibility for them, but it doesn't really create a placement or treatment that doesn't otherwise exist in Mississippi. Tell us about this uh, new care portal. There's a recent press release on that. That's really exciting, um, an, an initiative that I'm really excited about. It is a... It's an opportunity to bring faith-based and nonprofit uh, and service-oriented uh, organizations in Mississippi together through technology to start actually meeting the needs of families and children in ways that may shorten their stay in custody or safely keep them from coming into custody. The way it works is Care Portal is a company that built out a sophisticated technology solution that takes needs and meets them with a response with you know it's it's like taking all the churches in mississippi and pulling together exactly what they do best so if we need a 
Yeah, just aggregating the resources, giving them sort of one place to go to, to I guess, match up the needs with the providers that can to, can help uh, address those needs. Yes, we already have 14 churches committed here in the Tri-County area. And, you know, the example that I saw happen in Oklahoma was a grandmother needed a wheelchair ramp to keep a, a child who was in a wheelchair. And one church gave the supplies, one church sent a, a crew. Wow. So it... It's pretty amazing to watch it work. Hang on. We'll uh, get to some of the other accomplishments that uh, your organization has achieved. On the other side of the break, we've got Andrea Sanders, Commissioner of uh, Mississippi Child Protection Services, coming right by. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, of course, REO Speedwagon. I'm still sore that they're not. We're going to get them in there, though. <laughs> We're uh, speaking with Andrea Sanders, the commissioner of Mississippi Child Protection Services. So you you handed me a sheet, which is very impressive, um, Andrea, that um, shows a lot of the accomplishments of the organization uh, since 2021. You talked about workforce stabilization and, and really reducing turnover is a big thing. We talked about the care portal. That just sounds like a great idea. I, I got to ask you though, what took so long to get something like that? Was that a, a technology matter or just a, a function of just putting all the pieces in place to you know, commission it, something like this? Just I makes think too so. much sense. Uh, it when I when we started with the agency, I think I told you originally there was a lot of foundational work that needed to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, getting honestly until you start getting the workforce somewhat stabilized, it's harder to do these things that I call getting fancy. You know, is yeah. basically laying a foundation. Sure. And we've really gotten to a place where this kind of work is more possible. And I think that it really demonstrates the importance in state government and especially in this kind of agency of building on something consistently. Okay. Um, you know, not that you can keep the same leadership, but if you set a course and start to really build on it, it takes it takes a number of years to start to create really positive change in government. Well, it's one of those things you look at, and, and I read how it works here, it's it's, as they say, a no-brainer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just makes too much sense. And so I, I'm pleased to see that. And it and it does certainly, uh, it's prudent, is it not, to um, to call on the faith community and even the private sector to help out with this problem. Not only that, they are so willing and ready to serve in Mississippi. And, you know, additionally, it, it reduces dependence on state government yeah. and shifts it to places that really want and need to help and then the other thing it does is, because of the nature of our work, 
you know, if a kid has needs, let's say they need britches that fit. Yeah. It's important that they not go to school the next day after they've been pulled out of their home in clothes that don't fit. And that's just a small example. But with the state purchasing process, it's shockingly hard to get britches overnight. Yeah, yeah so I get it. Lots, lots this of is red a tape. Immediate response that doesn't have to go through the red tape. Make makes total sense. So, you've also got uh, a technology project going on right now, right? You've got a legacy system that uh, you're in the process of modernizing, scheduled to go live uh, later on this year, the end of September. So, are you still using the old mainframe system that they've been using for so long? We are. We are. We did some. We had to do some work to it simultaneously to this other project because it had been on a platform that was unsupported for yeah. several years. Yeah. So there was a big risk of it crashing. Um, we've gotten it to where it will limp along until okay. we can convert over. But this project, the legislature was so generous to the agency in recognizing that you know our technology keeps a, a child's story. And it's really important because if you have one caseworker that deals with that child and then leaves, somebody else has to pick up right then and there. So it's like, you know, leaving a note for the babysitter. Sure. It really matters. Yep. And um, it really matters that we can, to we need to be able to generate data okay. in a much more uh, simple and consistent way. But we are th- – that was a big lift to – to replace a technology system, a legacy system in Mississippi. And I'm really proud of our team. They pulled yeah. together, and we're not there yet, but we are We're on the home stretch. Good. It's important. I have no doubt that that will serve the caseworkers. I mean, that's really the people whose who's, who's function you want to improve and enhance more than any, honestly. They're Absolutely. the ones de- delivering that service directly to your customers, essentially. So how do you get money? Uh, where, where does your money come from? What's the funding model? So, you know, the state uh, gives us a general fund appropriation, and uh, they've really they've been very uh, – They've they've been very responsive Mm -hmm. when I go to them with data and show them what the needs are. So we've increased what we bring in from the state incrementally over the last three years. But the really important other part of that that we've been able to accomplish is that we've taken that money and we've multiplied it with federal matching dollars and we've been able to increase what the state is bringing in from the feds up to about 20 million over uh, in in the last year. So that allows us to I call it reducing dependence on state general fund. Okay. We're not exactly uh, funded where we need to be right now, but there's a lot we still have some room to grow uh, the money we bring down in federal dollars. So what about the just the volume, Andrea? I mean, are you increasing caseload, decreasing about the same? How, how's that going, Gerard? That that part scares me a little bit. You know, we've we're coming off a pandemic. We know we have a mental health crisis going on, and um, we know that you know we're a year and a half into to the post jobs world, and we. We have taken a lot of measures as an agency to reduce safely the number of children in custody and to bring in robust 
in-home family services for children and families. But we're seeing a spike. Uh, Over the last five months, we've seen an unusual spike in the number of kids coming into custody. So the highest since I've been there, uh, the highest number of kids in custody was around 3,950 when I first got to the agency. We have predictable dips and uh, spikes that that stay pretty similar over the course of each year that we've been able to track. But we've seen a steady uptick in the last five months. And so we're back up to 3901 uh, as of February 1st. So that concerns me a little bit. Um, Mississippi, as you know, we, we have a, uh, if not the highest, very close to uh, number of out-of-wedlock births. Mm-hmm. 57% last I checked of births in Mississippi are covered by Medicaid, highest in the country. Is this a factor that ultimately causes these downstream problems for, for children when their children are born out of wedlock, they're born into impoverished setting? Absolutely. Um, poverty and, you know, single parenting really contribute uh to just a, a difficult situation for families to thrive in. And, uh, you know, even if a family has enough financial means, single parenting is hard. Sure. sure. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, 30, so how do we reverse this? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I talk about this a lot on the program. I And statistically, it's just a fact. You know, children born into uh, single-parent homes, it, it's not necessarily – um, etched in stone that their outcome is not going to be as positive as it could be. But statistically, it's yeah, the probability is considerably higher. How do we reverse this trend, which has plagued the state of Mississippi for decades? You know, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I think that first of all, investing in bringing higher paying jobs to families that bring insurance with them, that bring uh, a number of factors that that help a nuclear family stay together. We have a lot of fathers that we interact with who really want to be part of their children's lives. So it you know they're uh, it's important that we uh, as a as a state really stay family focused and encourage and continue to to support families in staying together rather than staying apart yeah i mean it's it's um no secret that uh, the probability or the chances of a child thriving and achieving their their greatest potential occurs when they are raised in that sort of environment where they've got a, a father in the home a mentor in the home as well i mean that's just statistical fact yeah, and that's one reason part of getting fancy this next year is we're going to be working with other agencies to start some fatherhood initiatives and really okay. incentivize and encourage fathers to be a part of their children's lives. Okay. Sure, we'd like to see um, really uh, uh, folks from across the spectrum in Mississippi pay more attention to this, not just our legislature, not just your agency and organization, but the private sector, our faith communities as well, other leaders that folks look up to. So that that we could appreciate the value of just the traditional nuclear family. Yes. Odds are much greater that we're going to have positive outcomes. 
Appreciate you coming on, Andrea. Thanks for the work you do and all the good folks at Child Protection Services. Thank you. Thank you, Gerard. I appreciate your interest in our work. You bet. We're coming right back, folks, with half an hour of middays in the Element Well Studio. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Well, that makes me think about Woodstock. Uh, we're all over it. Little Sly and the Family Stone. On a Monday, we're in the Element Well studio. Little guitar. <laughs> that is good there now. So, I um, appreciate uh, Andrea for coming in. And I will tell you, folks, some of the stories, they're, they're heartbreaking. They're gut-wrenching. And it's... Um, it's a cultural problem. It just is. Just too many folks that really aren't in a position to properly care for a child, but they're still bearing children. And um, their their chances of thriving are just less when they're not raised in a traditional nuclear family. You need someone to give you a roadmap. And sometimes if you're having a child at too young of age, you don't have not gotten the roadmap from whoever raised you yet, totally. That doesn't end just because you hit adult age. And and so this is a a trend that's been increasing that we gotta stop. But you know this Rhino, that there's high school kids now that get pregnant. And they have these giant parties for them. And then a classmate gets jealous, and they think they got to get pregnant so they can get the same sort of attention. That, that happens. No, well, I want a party. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I'm, re- I'm really not. But we, we have shifted away from handling that different, let's put it this way. We glorify it. We praise it. We put those folks up, youngsters, on a pedestal. And if you say anything remotely critical of it, you get your head chopped off, right? You're just insensitive, you're racist, if that comes into play, whatever the case is. No, we're trying to change this trend that is burdening the child, themselves, society, overall. And and just to to um, adhere to the success sequence that has been well documented and analyzed and promoted, and that doesn't call for 
having a child when you're in high school. And I know that's not all the situations here with respect to that CPS responds to, but it, it does tend to produce, we have a high rate of teenage pregnancies in Mississippi, out of wedlock births, and then 57% being born to mothers who are covered by Medicaid, highest in the nation. And, and so the fact that the child is being born to a mother who is eligible for Medicaid, a pregnant woman, one of the current coverage groups, that simply means that it tells you that their income isn't very great. So it's, um, it's, it's the root cause, I guess, that needs to be addressed. And unfortunately, all these challenging, difficult circumstances fall on the shoulders of CPS. What did Andrew say? 1,700 employees, I believe. Man, that's just incredible when you think about it. And 3,900 kids in their care, in the, in the system. Wow. Incredible. Let's see here on the ceasefire text line what we got. Um, yeah, so Jim and the Delta, we were talking about the the net worth of, of individuals in particular, those in the Congress comes to mind when you hear these members of Congress that are blasting people that have achieved any kind of um, e- economic success. And I, I know it's very common for folks to believe that uh, those in Congress, they, they show up broke and they end wealthy. But And that would, there was a time 25, 30 years ago with that, where that was the case. Really not anymore if you look at those who've, who have um, in Congress and you look at their net worth, you look at a ranking of them, virtually all those in the top 20 or 30 uh, all came to Congress rich. In fact, you just about if you if you think about it, Rhino, these days, unless you're a a, uh, a long time incumbent, you just about got to be rich in the big states for sure. If you're going to throw your hat in the ring, especially for U.S. Senate, I mean they're they're spending sixty, seventy million bucks of their own money to mount these campaigns. It's insane how much money's being spent there. Um, but. I know Benny Thompson comes to mind, and Jim of the Delta says Benny wasn't that way before he got there. Well, if you look at the official recorded financial filings by the congressman, he's worth less than a million dollars. That's, And that's after having been... Uh, in Congress, 30 years. He's been there since 93. Now, that's not to say that Benny doesn't have some assets stored elsewhere that don't show up on his balance sheet. I don't know. I don't have any proof of that. All I'm telling you is that what he officially submits as his financial condition, his financial statement, reflects a net worth of under a million bucks. Now, when you think about someone of his age that's likely got a house and some other assets, that comprises in pension and savings plans and so forth. I mean, that comprises the vast majority of his of his wealth. I wouldn't exactly say that's that's a situation where he got there and he and um, thirty years later he's just filthy rich. Uh, again, 
there may be some offsheet assets we don't know about. If that's the case, then he's falsifying records that he's officially submitting to the federal government. And I haven't seen uh, the Federal Elections Commission specifically. I haven't seen anyone challenge that. And he does have opponents that run against him on a regular basis. You would think they would expose that if it's the case. So I'm not defending him. I'm just I'm just passing on what's out there available officially. I also know that there are a number, well over a hundred members of the House that that literally live in their offices, use the House gym. Congressman Greg Harper was one. If you can find an apartment, it's ridiculously expensive. If it's anywhere remotely close to the capital where you work, to get something that's affordable, which, by the way, they don't get a housing allowance, to get something that's affordable, you'd have to go 40, 50 miles away and fight brutal bumper-to-bumper traffic. So many of them just bunk out in their offices. And, and, uh, and again, I, I'm not asking you to feel sorry for them whatsoever. They signed up for it. I'm simply saying that I think that has changed somewhat. And that, yeah, there was a time when you were exposed to lots of insider information that the rest of the world didn't know. Uh, the tools we have available today, the pervasive nature of information, especially about private companies, there's virtually nothing that they know that the rest of us don't. I mean, it's, it's just common knowledge widely available. If, if you're looking to invest, for example, Today, and you're looking for something that would deliver strong growth, no secret that artificial intelligence is driving big tech. That's where most of the growth is in the stock market, has been historically. It's where most growth opportunity is. Look no further than what happened last week with Microsoft and Apple and Google and Meta. NVIDIA. NVIDIA is up quite a bit today. They're the guys that make the chips that are optimized for artificial intelligence software development and processing of artificial intelligence applications. So this is powering all these companies. I saw, um, I think NVIDIA is 650 right now, 650 a share. Look it up there, right? 650, somewhere in that neighborhood. I heard a, a 52-week, actually not 52-week, but end-of-year target from two analysts last week, putting it at 900 a share. Did you say 650? Yeah. What is what is it? 690. Okay. So well, it's up today significantly, right? 20 bucks or so. When well, last time I checked, it. what's it? Yeah, doing? it's up almost 30 today. Okay. Well, so 650 was Friday. <laughs> so today it's 690. But putting a target on that, 900 in less than 12 months. Wow, that's, what, 35% increase in nine months? The only thing I'm trying to say is you don't have to be in Congress to know that and to hear that and to consume that information. Nothing special or secret going on there. In fact, if anything, you'd have the government uh, trying to screw things up in that neighborhood and make it even more difficult for them to uh, boost their stock value. We're coming back with the final segment of Middays, and then it's Ricky Matthews with Super Talk Outdoors. Stay with us. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. 
on Super Talk Mississippi. Why would someone, this is Jim in the Delta, from a large state who is already incredibly wealthy, like you said, spend 60 or $70 million to get elected to Congress for that salary? Inquiring minds want to know. That's easy. Fame, power, notoriety, all the above, all the spoils that come along. It's not the money, the 174 I mean, Rick Scott, who's worth $250 million, could care less about $174,000 salary. By the way, he was governor of Florida before that. I think last time I checked, Rhino, he spent like $120 bucks of his own money between running for governor and running for U.S. Senate. I, I'm picking on him because he's either number one or number two. In, I think he's number two. Is it Daryl Issa? That, remember we talked about him before? No, it's uh, Kevin Hearn. Oh, that's Oklahoma. right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, is the Issa... Look him up. His net worth is massive as well. He's I don't just, think he's even in there anymore, is he? I thought he. I thought he ran and got re- took off a cycle, and then ran and got reelected. Maybe not. But I know for for a while he was uh, at the top of the list. Yeah, I think he's still in there. Twenty twenty three through present, he just got right. He took off, and now he's back in there. Um, forty eighth congressional district. Uh, the uh, sort of Orange County, Bakersfield sort of area, close to where Kevin McCarthy is from. But his net worth, it's it's way on up there as well. Okay, four hundred and sixty million is what his net worth is. So depending on what data you're looking at, he may be number one. Uh, yeah, they would put him ahead of Kevin Hearn. Okay, so remember. When I was trying to think about what he did, I said he had something to do with, um, like, automobile audio systems. But when we looked at it more carefully, his business, which he co-founded in 1982, was aftermarket security products. Remember, that's back in the days when vehicles didn't come with built-in security systems, which is pretty common today. Back then, you went to some local company for them to install an automobile, a vehicle security system. And his company was one of the players in that market going back to 1982. And I think he sold it, if I'm not mistaken. And he's worth $460 bucks. is what I'm looking at. So but I just know he's, he's way on up there. Uh, but, yeah, but his company was the one that became famous because it had his voice saying things emanated from the vehicle like protected by viper stand back please step away from the car so he he had the higher end models that's right that's right the ones that would tell you to back off (laughs) well uh, but you know look i i get it and i understand why people get upset they feel like folks leave uh 
their homesteads of modest means, go to Congress and get filthy rich. But And there was a time when I do think that was the case, but that that's fewer situations these days. And if you look at the list of net worth, uh, ranking of net worth of members of Congress, it's virtually every one of them. Well, the other thing to bear in mind pertaining to the question about why would you spend that much money to become a senator, it wasn't until, I think it was this this year, that the threshold of 2,000 people have served as U.S. senators in history. So you've got these, and they have to be ambitious to be that wealthy. So they're ambitious, and they can be one of millions of business leaders, or they can join a club of just over 2,000 people. That's a good point. Very, very exclusive club. And that exclusive club also has benefits when you're done, not necessarily financially, from the standpoint of you're not getting a pension just because you went up there and served as a senator for a term. Yeah. But you did open the door to throwing your name in the hat for a presidential run, going back to the ambition there, because you have a better chance of running for president if you've been a politician, like a senator before, especially if you've been a senator. You get a pretty sweet gig as a lobbyist if you want one, because you now know the ins and outs of the process and have rubbed shoulders with the people that are still there. So there's it's multifaceted why you would want that added to your resume being a US senator. Yep. It's absolutely true. It's it's so and you don't see that kind of big money being spent on just a congressional seat to to uh, Not usually, also no. yeah, that's pretty pretty rare. But you can see how running a Senate campaign in the state of Florida, yeah, that's a 100 million dollar endeavor. Texas, 120 million dollars. Absolutely. California, same deal. Those big states, it's just what it takes. By the way, it takes serving in Congress five years to qualify for the federal congressional pension. That means if you're a member of the House, you got to serve three terms. you got to get elected three times just to vest in the minimum, which, by the way, is about seventeen grand a year if you serve three terms. You would qualify for a pension that would amount to about seventeen grand a year. We're out of here today. Appreciate you joining us. Back with you tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. You're home for a Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.